Well, some things in life are unique. Uh, if you could turn the front lights off for me. Thanks, Doug. Uh, snowflakes, for example. It's uh, said that there are no two snowflakes that are ever the same. Uh, or take the hummingbird. The hummingbird, uh, I know there's lots of birds, uh, but the hummingbird is unique in that it is the only bird that can fly backwards. It is the only bird that can fly upside down. It is the only bird that can hover. The hummingbird is unique. The hummingbird alone can do these things. We're up to Deuteronomy 5 and 6, and it is all about God being unique, that he alone is God and there is no other. But before we look at uh, Jesus and how he makes sense of Deuteronomy 5 and 6, uh, as we've done every talk so far, it's, it's, this morning it's going to be good to do something else first, uh, because chapter 5 and 6 of Deuteronomy have Old Testament law in them. Uh, it's got the famous Ten Commandments. And so before we look at Christ and how he makes sense of Deuteronomy 5 and 6, it's worth thinking about how Christ makes sense of the Old Testament law. And the New Testament has lots to say about it. Now, the first thing that the uh, New Testament says about Old Testament law is that it highlights sin. Uh, you see this in places like uh, Romans 3, Galatians 3. Uh, even as the Ten Commandments were just read for us by Penny, it's a brave person, isn't it, who says that they have always obeyed the Ten Commandments perfectly. Uh, for example, honour your father and your mother. Uh, we don't do it perfectly as we are, let alone if we remember back when we were teenagers or little children. Uh, the Old Testament law highlights people's sin. It shouts out people are sinners. They cannot do what God requires of them. And so the law places people under the judgment of God. Uh, in that sense, the law is bad news because it brings judgment and death. It declares people guilty and deserving of punishment. Second thing that the law does, uh, that the New Testament tells us about the Old Testament law, is that Christ came and has fulfilled it. And we see this all over the place in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus was completely obedient. He perfectly, exhaustively, thoroughly, and in every way possible lived in obedience to God. And the good news is that he didn't do it to show off. Uh, he, did it for the, he did it for sinners because sinners can't. Uh, and then he did a swap. So people break God's law. They deserve to die under God's judgment. That's what we deserve because of sin. But Jesus swapped his perfection, his obedience for our sin and then died under God's judgment. So he got our sin and he dealt with it and then gives us his perfection. And so we can be spared from God's judgment. So Christ has fulfilled the law for us. He's perfectly obeyed it. And he's also dealt with the law for us by dying under God's judgment. So the third thing that the New Testament teaches, with great excitement, is that since Christ has fulfilled the law, since Christ has dealt with the judgment of the law, then we're not under the law. That's a great thing, since the law highlights sin and puts people under the judgment of God. Now we see this in places like Romans 6 and 7, Galatians 4 and 5, where we read that not even the Jews are under the Old Testament law anymore. Uh, Gentiles were never given the law, but the Jews, they were the ones who were actually given it. And Jesus has come, fulfilled the law in such a way that not even, old, not even Jews are under Old Testament law anymore, let alone us Gentiles. So what's the point of it then? Why are we reading it? Uh, well, according to Christ himself, the law, just like the rest of the Old Testament, is to help us understand him, who Jesus is, why he came, wh uh, what he came to do, why he did it. 
Now, it is true that the New Testament, on occasion, grabs an Old Testament law and says that we should obey it. But it always does that in the light of Jesus having already fulfilled it. So we have to be careful just lifting a a law out of the Old Testament and saying we should obey it. Uh, We always need to use the New Testament as our guide, and we're going to think a little bit more about this uh, in a couple of weeks. But it's Christ's fulfilment of the law, the fulfilment of the whole Old Testament, which is why each week we've started with Christ and how he makes sense of the bits of Deuteronomy that we're reading. And this morning, as we look at Deuteronomy 5 and 6, we're going to see that it's all about the Lord alone being God. Now, right through these chapters, I don't know if you noticed it as Penny was reading, but whenever you see uh, the word Lord written, it's uh, written in capital letters. And whenever you see Lord written in capital letters like that in the Old Testament, it's the personal name of God. It stands for Yahweh or I am. It's the name that God revealed himself by to Moses. And Yahweh or I am in Deuteronomy 5 and 6 wants it known that he alone is God. Turn with me, though, to John chapter 8. Keep a finger in Deuteronomy 5, but turn with me to John chapter 8, and we'll see that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the great I am. Uh, John chapter 8, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 54. At this part in John's Gospel, Jesus is talking to the Jews when he drops this bombshell that he is Yahweh. Uh, John chapter 8 and verse 54, Jesus is Yahweh, the great I am. 8.54, Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. The Jews wanted to kill Jesus because, according to them, he just blasphemed. He claimed to be Yahweh. He claimed to be the great I am, which of course is blasphemous, unless it's true, which it is. Jesus is God. He is Yahweh, the great I am in the flesh. And so as we look at Deuteronomy 5 and 6, all about Yahweh alone being God, we know that what we're reading is actually teaching us of Christ being God. Some things in life that are unique They make no difference to our lives. The hummingbird, for example, is not going to change my tomorrow. He's not going to change all his uniqueness. He's not going to change how I treat him. But Jesus, uniquely being God, that's a truth that should profoundly change our tomorrow. It should profoundly change how we treat him. So let's turn to Deuteronomy now. I hope you kept a finger in it. Deuteronomy. We're actually going to pick it up in chapter 4. And uh, as Moses ends his first sermon, he ends with a fanfare. He wants Israel to know that Yahweh alone is God. Chapter 4 and verse 35. 
getting towards the end of his first sermon. Chapter 4, verse 35. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord, that's Yahweh, is God. Beside him, there is no other. And to make sure that Israel got the point, Moses says it again. Verse 39. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today. Keep his decrees, keep his commands because Yahweh is God in heaven and earth and there is no other. He alone is God. That's where Moses ends his first sermon, and Moses, when he begins his second speech, picks up where his first sermon left off. His second speech opens with the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments shout from the rooftops that Yahweh alone is God. Pick it up, chapter 5 and verse 6. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Yahweh was their God. He was the one who had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He had brought them to himself. The Ten Commandments, they didn't make Israel God's people. They were already God's people. God had already loved them. Yahweh had already brought them out of slavery in Egypt, brought them to himself, made them his people. And as his people, what they needed to know, most of all, commandment number one, Israel, is, verse 7, you shall have no other gods before me. Israel was to give Yahweh their absolute, total allegiance because he alone is God. No point worshipping other so-called gods. They don't exist. Same point drilled home in uh, the second commandment, verse 8. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Yahweh alone is God. So no idols, no bowing down to them, no worshipping them. And the rest of the Ten Commandments flow out of this bedrock truth that Yahweh alone is God. The Ten Commandments is God commanding Israel on what to do and telling Israel what to do is his right because he alone is God. And he's the one who personally came and saved them out of Egypt. He's good and generous and so we'd expect his laws to be good and generous, which they are. Honour your father and mother, do not steal, no murder, don't commit adultery. They're good laws and we're going to think more about the character of God's law in a couple of weeks. But for now, the Ten Commandments, they either shout out that Yahweh alone is God or they flow directly out of Yahweh alone being God. He has the right to tell them what to do. And as we move on into chapter 6, it's the same theme being drilled home. Moses really wants them to get this. Chapter 6, go across there, verse 3. Chapter 6, verse 3. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your forefathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You can hear Moses pleading with Israel here, can't you? He's telling them, be careful, 
Obey all the commands of the Lord. Obey all his decrees. Obey the Lord your God because the Lord your God is one. He's unique. There are no other gods beside him. There is only one. And so do what he says. Obey him. Keep his commands. And from John chapter 8, we know that this God is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Yahweh, the great I Am. As we watch God in action in the Old Testament, that's Jesus in action before he became human. It's the Lord Jesus who made the heavens and the earth. It's Christ who parted the Red Sea, sent the plagues on on, on Egypt. There is all of the action of of God in the Old Testament. It's Jesus. He, He says, I am. He is Yahweh in the flesh. And so it's no surprise, is it, that when we open to the Gospels and we see Jesus in action, he tells nature what to do. He stands up in the middle of a violent storm, tells it to be quiet, and it is. Because he's God. He's been telling creation what to do ever since he made it. And as he walked around Palestine, he raised the dead, brought Lazarus out of the tomb after four days, raised Jairus' daughter, the widow from Nain. He raised her son from the dead. And it's no surprise because Christ is the author of life. He created life. When we think of Jesus, we need to be careful that we don't domesticate him. He's not our fishing buddy. He's not our butler. That we demand things from him and that we, he should get us things when we want them and how we want them. He's not at our beck and call. We don't have the right to tell him what to do. He's God. We're not. So when we disagree with him, when we don't like what he says in his word, when we don't like how he's panning our life out, we need to remember who we're disagreeing with. We need to tread carefully with the Lord Jesus. He's God. There's only ever one reigning king or queen of England, and whoever it is has a throne in the House of Lords. Uh, Here's a picture of it. I might even want to kill all the lights for this one. The picture's not that great. Thanks, Doug. Uh, It turns out uh, the people in that first picture, that's as close as they'll ever get to that throne because it turns out, not very surprisingly, that only the monarch can sit on this throne. It's the throne of the reigning king or queen of England. This is their chair. It's their throne and no one else may sit on it because they alone are the king or queen of England. Now, if you and I can't sit on the queen of England's throne... How much more can we not sit on Christ's throne? He is God, we are not. And there are no other gods. With the Father and the Spirit, he alone is God. He is our God. And so how should we treat him? Well, we'll go back to Deuteronomy and have a look at that because we'll get our cues from there. For Old Testament Israel, Yahweh alone was God. That was the fundamental truth they needed to get straight. They needed to get that absolutely clear. Yahweh alone was God. If that's the fundamental truth, then their fundamental response is what comes next. Since Yahweh alone was God, then Israel was to love him with all that they had. Chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Yahweh alone is God, and so he deserved Israel's total love. 
not lukewarm, not half-hearted. God deserves more. There are no other gods, and so he deserves total loyalty. They were to love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their strength. Now, we good at this point just to define love, because uh, love gets bandied around lots of times. Um, does this mean, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart? Is that, you know, Israel was to well up in gushiness uh, 24 hours a day? Were they meant to try and create warm fuzzies between them and God as much as they possibly could? Uh, thankfully, no. Uh, love in the Bible is to deliberately choose to do what's best for someone else. Uh, they were to deliberately choose to be loyal to God no matter what. That to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul and strength was to decisively commit themselves to God. Israel was to love Yahweh with every fibre of their being. Not a dry legalistic commitment. Yahweh was God. He had loved them and saved them from slavery. And so Israel was to have a deep, personal, lifelong, wholehearted commitment to Yahweh. And not just that generation, but their children as well. Every generation after them. Verse 6, chapter 6, verse 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your heart. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. The commandments were to be on their hearts, impressed on their children. God and his ways were to be the topic of conversation all the time when they're walking, when they're they're sitting, when they're lying down, when they're getting up. Everyone, all the time, loving Yahweh with all their heart and soul and strength and so living in complete obedience to God. Israel's deep, personal, wholehearted commitment to Yahweh was to be expressed in total obedience And so we read in verse 6, the commandments were to be upon their hearts, their hearts and their children's hearts. And if any future children were to ask them, look, who is Yahweh that we should obey him? Who is Yahweh that we should love him? Well, they were to tell those children was because Yahweh loved us first. So chapter 6, verse 20. Chapter 6, verse 20. In the future, when your son asks you, what's the meaning of the stipulations, decrees and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him... We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. But the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on earth to our forefathers. Who is Yahweh that Israel was to obey him? He was the one who had been faithful to his promises in power. He had rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Yahweh alone was God, and so we love him deeply, they were to tell their children, with all that we have in complete obedience. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, when you love someone who is an authority over you, you gladly obey them. Children to parents... If they love their children, uh, if they love their parents, they're going to do what their parents ask them to do, tell them to do. Or workers and a boss, if you've got a boss over you and you love them and you value them and you respect them, when they ask you or tell you to do something, you'll gladly go and do it because you love them. Or think of soldiers and their commanding officers. If they've got a commanding officer who they love and respect, When their commanding officer tells them to do something, they just go and do it because they love them. Think of a sporting team and you've got a captain 
And if you're in that sporting team and you're, you love your captain, you respect him, you honour him, you value him or her, and they tell you to go and do something, you go and do it on the sporting field because you love them. When there are people above us and we love them, we obey them gladly. We'll bend over backwards for them. Old Testament Israel, they were to love Yahweh with their, all their heart and soul and strength, and so they were to obey him in everything. And since Christ is Yahweh, since Jesus is the great I Am, it comes as no surprise that we're to treat him the same way. So turn with me back to John, John's Gospel, chapter 14 this time. And pick it up in verse 15. So John 14, verse 15. Uh, this sees Jesus the night before his death with his disciples and he's telling them what it'll mean for them to remain as his people when he's gone. And it's that if they love him, they'll obey his commands. So John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. It's pretty simple and to the point, isn't it? If you love him, you'll obey him. It's the same again, verse 21. Go down to verse 21. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. That's fleshed out a little bit here. The one who loves Jesus is the one who obeys his commands, and those who love Christ are loved by the father, and Christ will love them too. So this is two-way love. It's two-way deep personal commitment. It is God the Father and God the Son loving us and us loving him. Similar again, down in verse 23. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's beautiful, isn't it? God the Father's love for us and making his home with us along with the Lord Jesus and his love for us and so we love Christ and obey his commands. Now in a couple of weeks we're going to think a little bit about what our obedience to him is going to look like in detail but spilling out of Deuteronomy 5 and 6 and here in John 14 I want us to think about our obedience to Christ flowing out of our love for him. God has loved us. The Father sent the Son to die for us. They've made their home with us by their spirit. He first loved us and so we love him. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God alone is God. Jesus Christ is the great I am and we obey him because we love him. Do you? Do you have a deep, personal, abiding commitment to Christ? That come what may, your absolute and total allegiance is to the Lord Jesus. That you love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. If you're like me and you get a bit stale in your love for the Lord Jesus and in your commitment to him, the remedy 
is to remember that Christ is God Almighty and that this God became man, took on flesh to love us in crucifixion. That this one who had glory before the creation of the world was willing to be humiliated for our sakes in death on a cross. That he wrote our names, God Almighty wrote our names in the book of life with his own blood. And if we believe this, if we get this, if we understand this, then we will love him with every fibre of our being. He has not left us. He remains with us. We are in Christ. We are loved by him. And so we love him. We want to be the people, don't we? With deep, unwavering conviction in our allegiance to Christ. We want to be the people whose first commitment in life is to Christ, that we follow the Lord Jesus with passion and with vigour, that no matter what comes our way, the deepest longings of our heart will always be for the pleasure and the glory of Christ. That when occasions come that threaten our loyalty to Christ, when we're tempted to shrink back from Jesus, we won't shrink back. Because our settled attitude in our hearts and in our lives, our loyalty, our allegiance, our deepest affection, our profound and personal commitment is to Christ our Saviour, Christ our God. We obey the Lord Jesus. We keep his commands. We honour his every word in wholehearted and glad obedience. Because he's God And he first loved us. And so we love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength. We love him. So we obey him. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent your Son, God the Son, to take on flesh, that he would die for us in our place, that we might become your people, that he has rescued us from the slavery to sin and death and judgment, that we might be free to belong to you. Father, thank you that we have been found in Christ, that you have loved us in him. And Father, that fills our hearts with deep love for your Son. And we pray that you would help us, stir us, Father, to deep personal commitment, wholehearted, not lukewarm, but in giving of ourselves entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is our God, he is our Saviour. And so we pray it in his name. Amen.